Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And if you're a frequent listener or watcher of SALT Talks, you know how enthusiastic we are about the blockchain and digital asset space. So we're very excited today to bring you the latest episode of the SALT Crypto Show, which is sponsored by FTX. Our guest today is the president of the Solana Foundation. Her name is Lily Liu. Uh, she's also an entrepreneur and investor focused uh, broadly on the cryptocurrency industry. She has a background as a CFO and operating executive in the US, China, and throughout emerging markets and recently moved to Switzerland. So she's ticked off almost every continent uh, of her resume already uh, and a fantastic uh, has a fantastic network as well around the world. Uh, she's a co-founder of Anagram, as I mentioned, president of the Solana Foundation and on the founding team of Osmosis and an advisor to Brave. Uh, previously, she co-founded Earn.com, which was acquired by Coinbase in 2018. She was also the CFO of the China Co Healthcare Corporation, where she built a 500-bed private hospital in China. She also worked at KKR in New York, as well as McKinsey in New York and Beijing. Uh, she re uh, received a bachelor's degree in economics and international relations from Stanford and studied East Asian, Asian studies at Harvard. Lily, amazing resume. I know the Solana Foundation is, uh, is very proud and excited to have you leading the helm. Uh, but in your own words, could you talk to us a little bit about your uh, personal and professional journey and how you ended up uh, working in the cryptocurrency industry after a very decorated career, uh, sort of in, in various walks of life professionally? Sure. Um, so I'm from California originally, and I always thought I was going to be a doctor. So actually, when I went to college, I was a pre-med. Um, and, you know, I did 80, 90 percent of my pre-med requirements. I think I had like physical chemistry left or something like that. Um, but really what was interesting to me from a young age is, um, you know, sometimes things happen somewhat serendipit serendipitously. And uh, when I was, I think, nine years old, um, I was kind of lazing around one summer, played with all the toys, read all the books I was supposed to read. I was like flipping around on the bookshelf and um, I read a book called Life and Death in Shanghai, which is a woman's autobiography of essentially being there's no other way of putting it than being tortured during the Cultural Revolution. So I read this book and it was just insane to me, right? It, it almost felt like fiction because uh, it was just such an extraordinary kind of story of what one person went through. Um, and I didn't fully understand it. So I read it over and over again. And, you know, I guess it's not really, you know, age appropriate reading for a nine-year-old or anything like that, but it really made an impression upon me. Um, a few years later, um, my family, which is Chinese, we, uh, I went to China for the first time as a tourist. And so I read this book, Life and Death in Shanghai, landed in the city of Shanghai when they didn't even have Pudong Airport or anything like that in the mid-90s. And I was just astounded, right, because um, there was this book that I thought had to be half fiction, except unfortunately it wasn't. Uh, and then I was, um, you know, witnessing the, basically this 180 degree kind of turnaround from uh, what had happened only a couple of decades earlier. And that was just so fascinating to, to me. Right. Um, and that was like very viscerally uh, interesting to me, even as a kid. Um, and that fascination really just stayed with me um, in all stages of life, even now. Right. Because it, to me, it really just sort of uh, portended some very fundamental questions, but I actually think we're not very good at answering. Right. 
um, which is um, how did part one of that happen? <laughs> how did the turnaround happen? How does that happen in one generation? Um, and, and, you know, 50 other questions, right, that, that um, come from that. And ultimately, you know, uh, I, I guess when you look in retrospect, some of these things actually do sort of blend together. Um, but uh, some of those things that piqued my interest then, right, and led me to study, in addition to the whole pre-med thing, international relations, economics, uh, East Asian studies, um, living in China, you know, living around the world, um, and then ultimately actually discovered cryptocurrency, Bitcoin at the time, 2013, when I was living in China, what was so fascinating to me about it was sort of this broader interest in how do these economic and political systems form and change and take shape over time, right? Because what Bitcoin basically proposed was, I know in the early days in the common press, it was oftentimes sort of viewed a little bit in this lens of uh, drug money, money laundering, laundering drug money was uh, maybe some of the, and, and of course, very speculative, but something a little bit sort of toward in the early days. But when I read the white paper, uh, which is just such this simple sort of seven, eight page type of articulation, mostly in math patients, um, it was I, it was like, okay, you know, this is definitely not a scam, right? Um, and what was more interesting, very tantalizing about it is this idea that you could have an, an economic system that would be governed by its participants rather than uh, essential power, right? Um, and in that sense, um, it seemed to, uh, you know, get to the whole first principles of the matter of um, are the governance systems that we presume to be the spectrum, spectrum of options today actually the full spectrum of options? And why do other options outside of that that sort of defined spectrum not exist yet, right? Is that because they, are, they cannot work or is it just because we have not yet enabled them? In crypto, from the very beginning, there's oftentimes been a lot of discussion around what are the use cases that we're going to see in crypto. Um, and that is, uh, like, that's something we're all looking for. It's something that needs to be built. Um, but then at the end of the day, where I think this is all um, kind of leading towards, uh, is this idea that you can have communities that um, organically form, form themselves into economies, which to an extent is kind of what's happening with Bitcoin, right? You have these organically formed communities that form into economies, that form into polities, and uh, and have a mode of governance, which is still being explored, uh, but looks so fundamentally different from the modes of governance that we see at, at scale today. And so as you think about different cryptocurrencies, obviously you're the president of the Solana Foundation. You discovered Bitcoin in 2013 um, and how it could inform new communities around the world. How do you think about the use cases of each one and how they're different or the same as each other? Yep. Well, it all started with Bitcoin, 2008, and then up until 2015 when Ethereum came along. Um, for that period of time, it was essentially there is a blockchain where the infrastructure is also kind of the application, which was initially in the early days really focused around payments because that's something where they're kind of implicitly the same, right? There's a blockchain and what it does is it sends a token from Lily to John and then back again. Uh, and it settles on this decentralized network, but fundamentally it's basically that one token, whether it's BTC or XRP or XLM, those are some of the earlier products as well, project, uh, projects, uh, Ripple and Stellar, where you basically send that token from point A to point B and back again. Um, and so now uh, in retrospect, now there's kind of this, now I think broadly and, you know, and probably, you know, pretty permanent uh, narrative around Bitcoin as digital gold. 
In the early days, I don't think that was the settled position, actually. Um, in the early days, there was a lot of uh, conversation around Bitcoin as being um, a scalable global payments network. Um, so uh, no one really talks about that anymore, but this was hotly debated um, in sort of like prior to the whole ceiling debate, which also took a year and a half to resolve 2016 to 2017 as a separate matter. Um, but that was essentially sort of phase one where infrastructure equaled application, right? Um, what the, the common thread was this idea that you could basically transmit value with an API call, right? That was very tantalizing to, I think, the earliest engineers that were working in this space. Uh, and then, uh, and that was, uh, you know, even now is something that is, you know, extremely sort of compelling to uh, many developers who start to really understand that about crypto. Uh, but then when Ethereum launched in 2015, that was the first articulation at scale of uh, this is not just decentralized infrastructure to send its native token between Lily and John and back, although you can do that as well. But really, this is decentralized infrastructure, which can support um, sort of uh, smart applications, smart contracts, um, and essentially sort of fuller-fledged applications to be run on this decentralized infrastructure. So essentially, you can do an almost unlimited uh, unlimited number of things outside of just sending um, a native token between, you know, from me to you and back again. Um, and so that was, I think, you know, the next major thing that happened. Infrastructure, it's infrastructure for applications, not just payments. Um, and that's where you know, people started to, the ERC-20 standard came along so that if I wanted to, I could mint Lilycoin, right? Um, or you could mint USCC, a lot more valuable than Lilycoin. Um, and you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of other things. Um, and that really opened up the space for, wow, you know, there's like these tokens. Um, there's, uh, I think people might have different ways of characterizing it, um, but uh, uh, there are full spectrum of you know really innovative activity, and then also people doing things with let's just call it short-term interests, right? But either way, open up this entire space, uh, and then introduce this idea of decentralized applications. Now, in 2017 and 2018, uh, you had the whole ICO boom, and then you also had the first glimmer of NFTs being the seeds of communities with CryptoKitties and that sort of massive torrent of interest, and also crashing the network CryptoKitties. Um, and with all of that activity that flooded onto Ethereum, um, then it became very apparent that there were some scalability issues. Um, and scalability in 2017, 2018, um, I think most people sort of saw scalability really most immediately in uh, transactions per second or TPS, just throughput, right? I think today people think about scalability in additional ways. Um, but the, the simplest way to think about scalability is like how many transactions can you do per second? Um, and so there is, uh, there was this whole generation um, of blockchains where people were innovating on how do you scale, right? Do you build a rollup? Um, do you build a layer two? And the philosophy, I think, originally of Ethereum um, was always that there would be sort of, uh, there would be you know, L2s or side chains or basically ways, ways to scale transaction processing off of the main chain of Ethereum. And that was kind of the presumed uh, requirement, um, I think, for a number of folks looking at the space. Uh, some people call, called it shorting, L2s, rollups, various things that people called it. But then Solana came along and totally is basically like, well, 
what if you just put everything on one chain? Oh my God, you can't do that, right? <laughs> so, uh, but totally, um, I think because he came from um, a network uh, infrastructure background, having worked at Qualcomm previously, um, had in uh, somewhat similar ways, or at least translatable ways, dealt with this idea that you had to have sort of very decentralized network um, that um, could process like a, an incredible sort of load of information and signal, right? Uh, and various ways of handling, you know, handling handling um, that and, and providing capacity for that. Anyway, so basically came up with a um, number of innovations. One of those quite a number of them, but one of them is this idea of proof of history. So in order to increase the parallelization of uh, processing of sort of information and, uh, and transactions on the network, um, you could synchronize different nodes um, by basically creating like a machine clock, right? And a timekeeper using uh, computer hashes. And that way you can more or less sync up um, totally independent uh, computers or network nodes or servers that are all performing that, you know, are entering or leaving the network at will. Um, and uh, and you can still sort of, you know, keep the network in sync while also sort of introducing some parallel capacity, right? So that amongst many other things um, uh, enabled Solana to essentially have this like, like massively sort of more performant um, infrastructure um in uh in the kind of that category of this is infrastructure for decentralized applications right and there are a lot of people in the 2017-2018 era that um started to do something similar with slightly different architectures and trade-offs um and then so fast forward for a while um uh took a while to build that it's pretty complex uh Solana launched their main net in March of 2020 i think right around when the pandemic really hit the US as well um, so interesting time to launch something when the world is shutting down. Um, and, uh, and I think that Solana basically, um, really sort of articulated and demonstrated, uh, how useful this could be, um, when Serum got built on Solana, enabling central, uh, central limit order books to actually exist on chain. Um, and so, you know, if you've been following crypto uh, over the last couple of years, the first application space that really blew up um, recently was actually in the summer of 2020, when decentralized finance really took off uh, and really took off initially on Ethereum, but took off uh, in a way that, uh, you know, because you can't, you don't have the performance on Ethereum to support central limit order books, right? If a transaction costs a couple of dollars and can take up to minutes to clear, um, you just can't support that many clicks of a button, right? So you can't, you know, post a bid and cancel a bid and it just doesn't work, right? So initially, a lot of decentralized finance was built around um, protocol constructions that did not require um, extremely sort of um, uh, high frequency of turnover and like uh, extremely fast transaction processing. So something like an automated market maker um, tolerates very well sort of uh, low latency, right? Um, so all of the kind of um, DeFi uh, primitives that were built were basically built around a chain that costs a couple of dollars and takes a couple of minutes. Uh, and then once Solana came along and basically was so performant that it kind of felt like Web 2 and that you click a button and something happens immediately, Right. And we're so accustomed to that these days because, you know, that's what we get in the regular, the regular internet that you, you know, just things just are instant and very performant. 
Um, so Solana basically um, launched uh, central limit order book trading uh, the beginning of 2021. Uh, and that was like, it really just leveled up the entire DeFi space, right? Because uh, it allows you to do entirely different things once you have that type of responsiveness. Um, so anyways, uh, I don't know. I don't know doesn't have to be like a history lesson in salon or anything like that. Um, I think it's but, valuable. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I think people who, who are less schooled on the history of Solana and, and sort of the layer one uh, sweepstakes that, that takes place, <laughs> understanding the trade-offs of, of different chains. And um, one thing that, that has always struck me about Solana, I think the, the technology underlying the chain, obviously uh, extremely powerful, one of the fastest uh, blockchains that allows for the type of scale that you were talking about. But I think the ability to build community is also something that stands out uh, in the Solana mm -hmm. ecosystem. Could you talk a little bit about what Solana's approach is to building community, to uh, stoking developer activity, and how that has differentiated yeah. it from other chains as well? Totally, totally. This is my mo it's, this is actually my favorite thing to talk about, um, and one of the things that I uh, that I oversee at the foundation is uh, we call it new markets growth, but it's really uh, New Markets is, you know, is basically XUS. Um, I uh, I joke that, but I actually do mean it. Um, from Solana's perspective, Germany is a new market, right? People don't think about Germany as a new, mar new market in any sense in, in, in the conventional sort of mindset. Um, but to us, uh, New Markets is anywhere where um, there's, you know, a substantial amount of awareness around uh, blockchain and Solana yet to be built, right? Um, and so um, the first thing that I think a lot about is that blockchains, they're not companies. There's no product, there's no service, there's no um, cap table, right? Uh, because the entire sort of way that the, the, the entire incentive structure that underpins the corporate world does not apply to cryptocurrency, right? That being um, there's capital invested, taking a risk on the development of some product or service that is then produced and sold for revenue, has some cost of being provided. Um, you've got margin, profit, that then, then the flywheel is that that rolls back into the people who took some risks to begin with, right? Whether capital risk, human capital risk, or labor capital, or, or, or financial capital risk in order to develop that product or service. Um, and that is uh, that underpins the business world, right? That underpins the way we think about finance, that underpins the way we think about capital markets, that underpins the way we think about money and value creation. There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, right? It just doesn't really port over actually that well to this world of L1s because an L1 is not a company, right? Solana is an open protocol and it has no real product actually. There's no product, there's no service. Um, there's no cap table. There's no cost of cost of goods sold, right? There's no profit. Um, there's just a token, and then anyone who would like to join the network can do so and find ways to mutually create value within that ecosystem, right? So node operators, they are only going to operate within Solana if it makes sense for them. And by makes sense, I mean you know before anything else, financially makes sense for them. Um, and so, uh, so we, we really think about uh, Solana and L1s, generally speaking, as actually being communities. Um, and once they reach a certain scale, then, uh, then they actually become economies. Uh, and then once there's enough value there um, that, you know, of mutual concern, then they start to adopt governance. And maybe it sounds insane to say, um, but 
to me that it really is on the pathway to becoming city country civilization, right? Um, it, this is like what these L1s are platforms for. Um, so when we think about building community, um, therefore it inherently is like a very, you have to think about that differently from building a company, right? Um, so in a company, you build a brand for a product. In a community, you've also got to sort of build, I wouldn't exactly call it a brand, right? But you've got to build uh, like a common set of interests and values to bind that community together. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and then you also have to sort of inspire people to, uh, feel like they actually own that community. They own a part of that community in their own way. And that's not just owning the token. It's not just financial, but actually what it's more about than anything else is hearts and minds. Right. Um, and a sense of belonging. And so what's kind of, what's so funny about it is these L1s, they're so explicitly commercial and financial in one sense. And yet in the other, um, they are highly emotional and highly based on people just wanting to be a part of it. Um, and so in terms of building um, building a sustainable sort of growth model for something like an L1, ironically, in my opinion, it actually hinges much more on inspiring people to go build that community rather than you know having a long list of corporate partnerships, right? Um, and, uh, yeah, so when we think about building community, um, be, uh, being cool really matters, right? Uh, and I think part of that is because, well, first of all, everyone likes to be part of a cool community. Uh, but then also, if you think about it very pragmatically, the way an L1 gets built is, in my opinion, there's kind of four funnels that matter. Um, the first one is the network funnel, by which I mean... You build the software, and then you've got to get node operators to actually run the network. Otherwise, there's no network, there's no blockchain, there's nothing to do, right? Nothing exists. Okay, so that's the first funnel, and that takes typically, you know, two, three years to get to mainnet. Now, once you have a network, um, if you don't have any developers building any applications, um, well, you're not going to be Bitcoin again, right? Because there's a slot of one for Bitcoin digital gold, right? Okay, we know who that is. That's Bitcoin. All right. So now everyone's competing for infrastructure for decentralized applications. All right. So you need as many people as possible to be building amazing applications, right? Otherwise, there's nothing for anyone else to do. And so the second funnel that matters, and this is the most important funnel right now for the entire industry, for Solana included, for absolutely every, every project in this space, um, is the developer funnel. And so if there's, let's say, 40 million developers in the world, and I think Electric Capital has put out a report saying there's maybe 17, 18,000, let's just call it 20, round up, 20,000 developers that are in web, uh, that are, are building in Web3 in some capacity, right? Then how do you attract more and more developers to be building within Web3, right? Not just smart contracts, but then also developer tooling above, above and below that. Uh, so on and so forth. Okay, so because uh, with developers, um, they've got to be innovating, building cool stuff. Otherwise, like there's no point in thinking about users, right? Because what are they going to use? Um, and then the third funnel, I feel like, uh, which matters more for entertainment and the kind of media-oriented application verticals, such as gaming and NFTs. The third one is really around creators, right? But the creators have required developers to support sort of their creative work as well. Um, because, you know, if you've got an NFT, you want to, got to put it on a marketplace, some developers got to go build that marketplace first. 
And then once all of that is in place, then can you really sort of have a sustainable conversation around users, right? So from my perspective, where we are in 2022 uh, within the industry is I actually think it's premature to talk about users. I think it's a it's never an irrelevant metric, but I think it's more of a vanity metric than a sort of very useful metric right now, because I just don't think there are enough really compelling applications out there for people to have a reason to be using decentralized applications even more than like 30 minutes a day at best, right? Uh, even that's a little bit of a stretch. And that probably only applies to your most dedicated DeFi traders. Um, and so, so I think that it's really just about developers. Um, there's, you know, once a network is running, there's always more things you can do. That's sort of like funnel one. And then funnel two is all about the developers. Because the thing is, the applications that are going to really matter in Web3 that are really going to sort of be that, like, that, uh, you know, that, that those applications are bringing a billion people into crypto, I don't think they really exist yet. And I don't think they're going to be a skeuomorphic sort of port over of what happens in how we use Web2 currently, right? It can't be because it never is. And also by definition, if we think this is really revolutionary technology, um, it always is revolutionary because it opens up essentially new parts of existing markets, right? It helps to, it exposes sort of long tails of existing market markets and allows you to organize those. Um, that's the way it's always been. And so, uh, so I think we're still absolutely searching for those application spaces. I think a number of them still need new infrastructure to be built. So in the same way that central, lim central limit order books were not possible in 2018, but they are now on chain, because there was a lot of innovation that happened in between, right? Solana happened, Serum happened, a bunch of other things happened to enable that. I think there's like a whole other sort of set of innovation, which is going to be required, which all requires developer talent. So anyway, so that's, in my opinion, why it's really just about attracting and supporting developers in the ecosystem. Um, and if that's the case, then, um, okay, why should, why should a developer... Um, basically drop what they're doing and come into Web3 and take kind of a massive risk, right? So not only do L1s have no product or service, right? They're asking, they're, not, they're asking someone else to actually be creating a bunch of value on this platform. And so it's like a total inversion of how companies work, right? Um, and, uh, and so therefore, you know, when it comes to building community, um, a big part of what attracts people into a community is that sense of belonging and shared value and coolness and uh, kind of like being part of the movement, being part of a generation. Um, and there's like various aspects, I feel like, of the inspiration and the aspirational nature of what it means to be a part of any community, right? Um, and so that's uh, that's something that has, um, that I think Solana has done a really amazing job at, right? I think, you know, in terms of like the, the visual design of Solana, I think itself is cool. Um, it's like a very sort of positive community um, that, uh, you know, amid all these kind of, I guess, you know, the, the, the gladiatorial sort of desire to pit L1 here against another L1 or something. I think Solana is always kind of taking the high road with a lot of those things. Um, and uh, so I think, um, yeah, so that's uh, how I guess I've thought a little bit about community. But I think what we're trying to really figure out now is, all right, we've got 
a number of these communities um, which exist. And we started to create a little bit of organization around communities. We call those DAOs, I suppose. Although let's be honest, today DAOs are mostly just uh, a notion and a discord, right? And a Twitter account, right? There's a, and maybe a token, whether fungible or non-fungible. So how much of this is actually really Web3 native? I would say it's aspirationally Web3 native rather than actually Web3 native, right? A lot of the tooling behind what these DAOs are. But what is unmistakable about them is that people have sort of gravitated and self-opted into communities that speak to them in one way or another. Okay, so then how do you take the, the those like sort of very organic sources of energy and actually turn those into... Um, turn those even into even more valuable communities, meaning economies, um, and then beyond that, right? Uh, that's organic growth, right? In like the most visceral way. Um, and uh, and then, you know, Solana, the protocol, right? And the community, those are uh, ways to really support those communities. So to me, it's just, uh, you know, we're obviously still thinking about it. I think this entire industry is still trying to think about exactly how this works, um, that's the fun part to me that, you know, it's not very often that you get to kind of think about entirely new business models, right? They're not that, I guess they're not even business models because there's no business really to be done here in terms of here's a product and service and I'm going to sell it and make some money on it, right? It's like the entire like mindset in a sense is like does not even apply here, right? Um, so, uh, I don't know if that answers your question at all, but those are some of our thoughts on the matter. Yeah, like you said, it's not a new business model. It's a way of restructuring the entire financial system and incentive structure within that system. Uh, and it's it's fascinating to see it play out and new use cases pop up every day for blockchain, tokenization, uh, things of that nature. You touched on Ethereum earlier. Ethereum is sort of that uh, great vintage car that that uh, maybe they've tried to restore it recently with the merge, with the, the transition to proof of stake. But as you mentioned, there's still certain limitations around speed and throughput and, and things of that nature that prevent it from scaling organically. And you have uh, several layer two solutions that have popped up um, that have gotten funding and, and have some promise, but um, still doesn't have that native scalability. Could you talk about how the merge and the transition of proof of stake, uh, how you see that affecting Ethereum, the trade-offs there, and, and how Solana still sort of separates itself? Uh, from yeah. Ethereum in terms of use cases? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of respect and a lot of love for Ethereum. I think they've done, continue to accomplish something really amazing and have an incredible community, right? Um, I've never really seen this as, you know, one is going to live and the other is going to die, right? Uh, and I think like once you remove yourself from, you know, that being an expected outcome or something, um, then at least for me, it kind of changes my mindset about uh, how to think about Ethereum and also how to think about Solana. Ethereum is going to be successful. They already are wildly successful. Um, but then uh, I, I do think that um, there are trade-offs with having this kind of, uh, uh, having a sort of more L2-driven scalability model versus having things sort of first and foremost co-located and still performant on a single chain, right? Um, I think that um, with with Solana, um, I actually think, you know, going back to basics in basic use cases, um, payments is an incredibly powerful use case that uh, I think crypto sort of stopped talking about and stopped really pursuing because, uh, frankly, payments never really worked in crypto, right? 
Uh, no one really ever wanted to use Bitcoin for payments because it took an hour and transaction fees uh, you know, have been anywhere between expensive to uh, completely unworkable, right? I remember at one point I once paid, you know, 50 bucks for a single Bitcoin transaction in 2018 or something like that, right? So it, as it turns out, the original use case of crypto um, and one of the most basic use cases of crypto, crypto has been really bad at this entire time. And, uh, and to me, you know, there's two things that really kind of had to happen in order for us to even be able to reconsider payments as a use case. One is that there had to be a sufficiently trusted and liquid stable coin or stable coins. So there had to be sort of scale collateralized stable coins, right? Maybe a little change in the future, but I would say in 2022, the stable coins that people are willing to use and trust and truly think that are marked one-to-one are collateralized stable coins. Uh, and more specifically, U.S. like collateralized USD uh, stable coins. And so, you know, even back in 2018, we didn't really have that. And now we've got USDT, we've got USDC, we've got a couple of others. Um, so there's enough liquidity in the stablecoin market that there's actually some some something that is you know doesn't have the volatility concerns, which uh, which you know can kill a lot of payments use cases. So that's in place. And then the other is that we have a network like Solana, which is a fraction of a second and a fraction of a cent to send a transaction. And therefore, you can start to approximate the experience that you get if you're using Venmo. Um, It's even better, I would say, than using PayPal or something like that. And then add on top of that, that you have smart contracting uh, and the ability to build decentralized applications that can add, I don't want to put intelligence, but more functionality to how you would want to interact with money. And there's like this whole world of possibility that literally didn't exist um, until, you know, maybe uh, maybe a year ago, right? Um, and I would say that that's pretty unique from something like an Ethereum, because even Ethereum post-merge, they've got the liquidity of, let's say, a USDC, uh, and they have liquidity on the main chain. But the thing is that, you know, the way bridging works today and the way multi-chain kind of interactions work today is within the broader Ethereum ecosystem, the only stable coins that people really kind of care about are the ones that are on ETH mainnet because uh, that's that's where the liquidity is, right? Like an Arbitrum USDC is not the same liquidity pool as like a ETH, uh, as an ERC-20 USDC. And so in my mind, it doesn't like really count as USDC because it's not the same thing, right? Um, so in that sense, um, I think for, uh, and even post-merge, right, ETH is much cheaper um, and a little bit faster, but it's still, you know, orders of magnitude away from a fraction of a cent or a fraction of a second. Um, and so I think that that is, you know, payments is the the oldie but goodie, I would say, uh, in terms of use cases that we just kind of stopped talking about because crypto was supposed to be good at it, but it was actually really bad at it up until now, I would say. Um, so I think that that's one example of something that I think Solana can really excel at. Um, and then if you build upon that, well, if this is actually sort of uh, a very scalable payment rail and DeFi is something which exists, is kind of the most scale um, application vertical right now as well, uh, then that becomes, to me, really interesting from uh, from like a financial innovation perspective. 
Could you talk a little bit about, you know, Solana continues to iterate as you as you mentioned, the, the chain only launched in 2020. You know, it's, it's hard to even fathom that given the scale of the growth from that time, uh, given that a lot of the dominant blockchains in the space are much older than that. Um, but Solana has struggled with outages. Historically, there was a long period in recent months of no outages. And recently there was another outage. Could you talk about that continued iterative process on Solana to uh, prevent outages and just generally uh, iterate around the blockchain and how to make it better? Sure. Um, so Solana has been on mainnet now for, I guess, two and a half years. So if you were to line its like sort of lifespan up with where Ethereum was, it would be equivalent to sort of end of 2017, 2018 for Ethereum. Um, of course, it's not exactly one-to-one, -one, uh, but then you know, in the early days of Ethereum, there were also a number of outages, not to mention the whole DAO situation and the forking of ETH as well. So in the early days of many of these networks, um, there's been volatility, tumult, technical um, roadmaps that whose uh, the demand for which outpaced its ability to execute. Uh, this has happened with so many networks um, in the blockchain space and also really in the Web2 space as well. Um, I uh, in the early 2000s, I probably wasn't paying attention as much, but I understand AWS also had some scaling challenges in the early days because they were also probably, uh, you know, had more demand for that infrastructure than they were able to scale like, at, at any given moment, right? So I think that that's also been the case for uh, Solana, where 2020 was sort of finding these use cases that would really differentiate Solana and really showcase what uh, it's able to do. And then 2021 was, especially after the NFT kind of thing came in July, it was just like this massive increase uh, in demand for the network. Um, and you can't really sort of plan a roadmap for that. Like, oh, you know, it's going to be 100x demand. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, what are we going to do to accommodate that? Um, so I think Solana has been a victim of its own success in many of those ways. Um, it really does remind me of the early days of, um, of Ethereum. Um, and uh, so there's no question it's been a challenge. Um, and there's no question that, uh, that you know, the, the uptime should be 100, like 100.00, right? Um, but then there's a number of things that Solana is doing to address that from both the software and hardware perspective. Um, and so on the software side, um, there's been a number of software upgrades. One of them is, uh, and by software upgrade, sometimes that sounds like, you know, that sounds a little bit like the software update that comes on your computer and you click a button and you're like, hey, okay, right? Like these, these are not just software upgrades. Like these are like software re-implementations, actually. They're like pretty substantial things to be able to implement. So one is fee markets. Um, that's, that's not just an upgrade. That's like a lot of kind of engineering that has to go in to implement a fee market. Um, there's been upgraded transport protocol in the implementation of quick, right? There's also stake weighted voting. Um, and these are all, uh, uh, yeah, to say that they're like, like features or upgrades kind of, um, uh, kind of may, may actually sound, make them sound more sort of trivial than they actually are in terms of like what needs to be engineered and implemented. So. There's that. Um, and then also um, uh, we have a partnership with Jump um, where Jump's software team is also building a software client, a second software client um, for the Solana protocol. Um, and so that's pretty, that's pretty significant, right? Uh, because one of, uh, one of, uh, it essentially means that if the current client were to just 
for whatever reason, completely disappear overnight, right? The network could still fully function um, uh, with there being a, a, another client on the market, um, totally independently built. Um, and that is one of the best things to be done in terms of sort of uh, decentralizing and diversifying um, her participation in the network. So there's that. And then um, also, you know, the validators, Solana has always taken a perspective that um, it, Solana does use, they're still CPUs, but uses like some of the most high-end CPU specs out there. Um, and so it's one of the highest specs of any proof-of-stake network. Um, and so given the higher sort of hardware specification, um, there's uh, been a sort of, you know, I guess there's been a, a, a decision that like, that sort of trade-off of requiring a higher spec node is worth it for the performance that you get, right? Uh, and that, as a side note, I would say that sometimes that articulation of trade-offs, like people are very familiar with the kind of first-order trilemma of blockchain architecture trade-offs, right? Speed, security, um, decentralization. Um, but then what people talk about a little bit less is the trade-off between, okay, if you have a slower network, what is the trade-off that means for actually users? Like, what are the trade-offs of some of these designs for other participants and other stakeholders in, uh, in your sort of broader blockchain ecosystem as well? Um, and so, you know, I think if you take a little bit of that broader view of trade-offs, right, you trade-off a little bit in terms of the accessibility of the hardware, um, but then what you get in return is um, you are more able to provide a very good experience for users because you click the button just works. Anyways, um, so on the hardware side, it is a higher spec. Um, and, uh, and so what that means is are there um, over the medium term also hardware optimizations that can be made if you do a custom validator in order to sort of further improve throughput performance, so on and so forth of, of, of the network. Well, Lily, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks and the Salt Crypto Show. We're big believers in what you guys are building at Solana. Uh, in addition to my role at Salt, I'm a partner at Skybridge, and, and we have money where our mouth is and skin in the game with Solana and Serum and are very enthusiastic about uh, your future and, and are excited to have someone with your uh, experience and pedigree at the helm of the foundation. So thanks for joining us here on Salt Talks. Look forward to uh, different areas of collaboration between Salt, Skybridge, and Solana going forward. And uh, I hope to see you soon in person. Yeah. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks again, Lily. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Lily Liu, who's the president of the Solana Foundation. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube, or anywhere that you consume podcasts. This is available in audio form. Also, uh, we're on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. Again, Solana is, is only two and change years old. It's a young uh, blockchain that has exploded in terms of its use cases and community. And, and we certainly encourage you to be a part of that community. Uh, but on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.